Hi, everybody. Welcome to the LSE on this lovely warm evening uh, to one of the few theatres here which has got air conditioning, thank goodness. My name's Charlie Beckett. Uh, I'm a uh, professor, in fact, I'm head of the Department of Media and Communications here at the LSE. Uh, I also am director of POLIS, which is the LSE's journalism uh, think tank. Uh, the event tonight, which we're very, very pleased to be able to, to host, uh, is done in co- uh, collaboration with the British government at LSE, in the government department, who were due to, ho- uh, to host Chris Patton until he unfortunately got ill. Um, it's not uh, for me, I mean, we're very interested here in what happens to the BBC and public service media in general. Um, but we don't have a point of view, so it's not for me to um, give any references for Diane Coyle as a possible full-time uh, BBC Trust chair. They've extended the deadline, so anyone here can, uh, can apply. But I think Diane, Diane does have some very useful lines in her CV. Uh, she's an economist, so obviously everyone here at the LSE respects that, especially because she was at the UK Treasury. Uh, she was an economics journalist uh, at places like the Investors Chronicle and the Independent, so again, uh, a lot of respect for that. And while Diane has already always uh, stayed close to academe, I think it's interesting that next year she's actually going to become a, a part-time professor at uh, Manchester University. Her books, which there are quite a few, are very clever, But the titles also show that they're readable and very relevant. One's called What's the Use of Economics? And others called How to Run the Economy as if the Future Matters. Uh, A third one uh, is called Sex, Drugs and Economics. So perhaps Diane is a little bit more BBC 3 than Radio 4. Um, As a member of the BBC Trust Board, uh, Diane has been uh, through one of the BBC's more traumatic periods. The loss of a director-general following the Savile scandal and all the editorial collateral was just the tip of an iceberg of issues facing the BBC. Now, as interim chair of the Trust, she can see, as well as anyone, that the BBC, on the one hand, has quite simply been never more popular or well used, at least if you go by the audience figures around the world. Yet it's also facing many specific criticisms and huge strategic question marks about its size, its funding, and, of course, its role in British and, indeed, global uh, society. So a huge agenda, and Diane is going to try and tackle that with her vision of a 21st century BBC. Please welcome Diane Coyle. Good evening, everybody. Um, Charlie, thank you very much for that introduction. I'd like to thank you and the LSE for hosting this event. I'd like to thank all of you for being here this evening. And I want to start with a very 20th century bit of the BBC. Free HD picture quality, eh? I grew up in an even funnier-sounding Lancashire mill town, a place called Ramsbottom. Many people will know of Brian Redhead as one of the famous voices of the Today programme. But he was an even bigger authority on his home ground. His Northern English voice was one of the key voices to us of the BBC. For me, and I'm sure for many people of my age, the BBC brought many voices into our lives. 
in a whole range of amazing programmes on radio and television. It brought us a world of inspiration and opportunity. It shaped us into who we are. I could never have imagined then, though, that I would have this huge privilege of chairing the BBC Trust. And while I'm doing this job, the awareness of what the BBC has meant to me will be my guide, because I want to make sure that as many people as possible across the whole of the UK have the same kind of access to inspiration and opportunity. One of the important things about the BBC is its universal reach. 96% of the population use BBC services every week, not to mention the 191 million reached by the World Service last year. Given all the changes in technology and the media in the past 20 years, this is pretty astounding. Universality gives the BBC real strength. It allows it to deliver its public purposes and its evergreen mission to inform, educate and entertain. Because it can give everyone, no matter who or where they are, access to ideas and information, as well as to laughter and tears, inspiration and excitement, and sometimes irritation too, but then that's also something to talk about. The story of the BBC is in many ways the story of Britain in the 20th century. A blossoming of creative and cultural expression, um, expanding opportunities for large segments of the population with far greater access to news, information and education, and an international reputation for free speech and pluralism. It's been an economic story. The BBC is a cornerstone of our thriving creative industries, delivering a large economic impact for every licence fee pound. And it's also a technology story, with superb BBC research and development contributing, for example, to digital broadcasting, to the games industry through the impact of the BBC Micro, and increasingly to online technologies as well. The public service contribution of the BBC, BBC's engineers through the decades is too little recognised and it's been outstanding. The result is that the BBC is part of the fabric of our everyday lives, in some obvious ways and some much less obvious ways. It's a great public enterprise that we all own and it must speak to all of us. To maintain its relevance and justify its funding long into the 21st century, the BBC needs to keep evolving. One way to meet the challenge is by continuing to develop, to develop new technology and to respond to changing audience demands and markets. The BBC needs to stay attuned to all the different ways people increasingly expect to use their media. It needs to provide services online, on demand, on smartphones, wherever people want and expect to be able to find the BBC. And it will continue to have an important role as well in helping people discover new ways of engaging with ideas and creativity. But the BBC can't only worry about technological change because the fabric of our society and our population is changing as well. Devolution has already brought some significant shifts in the political map of the UK. There's obviously the question facing Scotland, but whatever the outcome of the referendum, the conversation about our political geography is going to continue. The last census showed some significant shifts in the makeup of the population. It's continuing to grow. There are more old people and there's a higher birth rate too. Immigration over the decades has changed many places, especially in the big cities. The gap between rich and poor has grown wider. 
And as a result, the UK is a far more kaleidoscopic place than it was when I was a teenager listening to Brian Redhead. And the BBC needs to try and reflect that so that today's teenagers, whether they're in Cardiff or Cornwall, uh, Davenport or Dalston, all find something that speaks to their identity. I know this matters to people across the UK. Earlier this year, our audience council for England gave a presentation to the Trust which compared the population of Walthamstow in East London to Walford, the fictional home of EastEnders. And I'm going to ask my technical expert to uh, put the next slide up for me, please. Okay, the slide has been lost. <laughs> um, the Audience Council gave a presentation which compared the two populations. Now, the cast of EastEnders is one of the most diverse on British television. So it was interesting to see that even so, it differs quite extensively from the real East End population. The Audience Council figures suggest that there are almost twice as many white people living in the fictional E20 as in the real E17, and the population of EastEnders tends to be much younger than their real-life counterparts and more likely to have been born in the UK. Now, of course, it would be daft to suggest that TV drama should reproduce contemporary society in replica. EastEnders does reflect the presence of different groups in our society, but it isn't a documentary and it has to appeal to a wide audience around the UK, which is very different from the audience in East London. But it's still important to ask whether the BBC can do more to, in its popular out, output to provide an authentic portrayal of life in modern Britain. The Trust reviews each BBC service every five years, and when we reviewed the BBC's network news service recently, our audience research showed up a significant concern that the BBC News could sometimes feel distant from people's everyday lives. And James Harding shares that concern. So we've agreed that BBC News will broaden their agenda and their tone, make more use of regional and local reporters on national network news, and push for further and faster progress in creating a more diverse workforce in BBC News, both on and off air. But this is an issue that goes beyond news. So the Trust has now set the Director-General a priority over the coming year to make measurable progress in reflecting better the diversity of the UK population, both in the BBC's workforce and in its programmes. And we were very pleased that last week he made a personal commitment to doing just that for people from black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds, announcing, for example, new targets for on-screen representation, a senior leadership programme and funding for commissioning. And I'm going to come back to say a bit more later about the other priorities that we've set and how we're expecting BBC management to respond. But as well as the importance of universality and reflecting Britain in all its rich variety, I want to talk about another key principle for a successful BBC in the 21st century, and that's its independence. The BBC is a national but not a state broadcaster. This distinction has been critical to its relationship with licence fee payers the extent to which they trust it and feel a sense of ownership towards it. It certainly helped build and cement the BBC's reputation overseas and the contribution this makes, in turn, to the UK's reputation and its position of a country that others want to do, want to do business with. The Trust has tried to sustain that relationship with the public by making the BBC more open and more accountable. All of our work on the performance of BBC services, on impartiality and on market impact has been conducted in a wholly transparent fashion. 
It's grounded in evidence from extensive public consultation and audience research. We exist to provide independent scrutiny of the BBC on behalf of everyone who pays for it. But I worry that the BBC's independence isn't as secure as it might seem. I think there's a real risk to the future of the BBC without a clearer definition of its relationship with government, parliament and the state. Politicians from all sides will sometimes inevitably nurse various grievances against the BBC on editorial grounds. And if they didn't, I'd worry about whether or not it was doing its journalistic job properly. However, politicians also understand that the public don't want BBC programmes to be made under any kind of political pressure. And maybe that's because research tends to show that people trust the BBC. At the time of the last Charter Review, the government's own research showed that only 9% of people thought the government should hold the BBC to account when things go wrong. Happily, in my time as a trustee, I've been aware of hardly any occasion when politicians have actively tried to interfere in the BBC's editorial judgments. However, over the last decade or so, the BBC has become more entangled with parts of the machinery of government, parliament and the state in all sorts of other more or less obvious ways. So, for example, the fact that the licence fee is now classified as a tax and the BBC is termed an arm's length body of the DCMS means it's been brought into what's called the whole of government accounts. The licence fee now funds government initiatives like broadband rollout and local television, as well as BBC services. The BBC's borrowings and those of the worldwide contribute to the public sector net cash requirement. The National Audit Office, which answers to Parliament, has almost unlimited access to review and investigate the BBC. The BBC Trust and Executive were called to 14 select committees in 2013, more than once a month, compared with six in 2003. And my concern is that through this range of small changes, many rather technical, and in themselves either understandable or apparently unremarkable, the BBC is less independent than it used to be and less independent than it needs to be. I wonder whether this blurring of boundaries in part explains the fact that the last licence fee settlement was conducted in a week under intense pressure and behind closed doors as part of the government's spending review. Some of the changes I just listed are mainly bureaucratic but still wasteful. Because it's now part of the whole of government accounts, for example, the BBC has had to revalue its entire property estate to fit with the NAO's accounting requirements for the DCMS, to no benefit. Others seem minor, but they have a significant strategic impact. So the fact that, for instance, BBC Worldwide has a very limited borrowing facility by normal commercial standards significantly restricts its pace of investment and growth. Now, of course, the BBC needs to be open to proper scrutiny by Parliament, including by select committees in the NAO and the PAC, of course. But in a rather British way, as things stand, there are no clear rules about quite how far that scrutiny should extend or how it should be conducted in a way that safeguards the BBC's editorial independence. And so it was that the Director-General found himself in a select committee questioned about specific editorial judgments made over a single episode of Panorama. And the European Scrutiny Committee has wanted to ask the Trust about the BBC's editorial coverage of the EU when our role clearly requires us not to determine editorial judgments, but rather to uphold the principles of impartiality and accuracy through editorial guidelines and adjudicating on complaints. 
Now, I don't have an immediate answer here, but I think we need clearer terms of engagement to establish when and how parliamentary scrutiny should take place and what it should involve. Otherwise, there's a real risk that the BBC could in future end up looking over its shoulder trying to please politicians rather than focusing on licence fee payers. For our part, we have to ensure that the kind of failures, such as severance payments and the rest, that contributed to the push for greater parliamentary oversight do not recur. And our recent governance review addressed this, clarifying roles and responsibilities at the top of the BBC so that its internal affairs are now better run and the BBC executive is now held more openly to account by the Trust. But the next Charter Review ought to grapple with this issue to provide proper clarity about what it means for the BBC to be independent of political interference. We're very glad that the current government has allowed the BBC the space to sort its own recent problems out and has resisted what must at times have been quite a considerable temptation to intervene. We welcome the fact they're doing everything they can to avoid politicising the Charter Review process and the decision about future funding by deferring that work until after the general election. Following the same logic, we think the Charter Review itself needs to be a proper, robust, open, consultative process, very different, in other words, from the last licence fee settlement. Then, as I said, the BBC, under extremely heavy pressure, was required to take on a number of new obligations from government. In some cases, like the World Service, this seemed sensible. In others, like local television and broadband rollout, we find ourselves funding government policy initiatives in a way that doesn't feel independent. This principle of top-slicing the license fee, license fee mustn't be baked into the next license fee settlement before the process even starts. The license fee is designed to make the BBC independent of the cycle of annual government spending decisions and hence of political interference while sustaining it as a universal public service. It's right that there should be a debate about decriminalisation, including the potential impact of such change on the BBC's income. We'll also want to put forward some ideas about incorporating on-demand viewing to iPlayer into any future licence fee system. But public support for the licence fee has actually increased in the past 10 years, and it's higher than support for any of the alternatives, such as subscription or advertising. There's every reason to think the licence fee, which pays for the creation of new programmes, no matter how they're viewed, is the best model and a sustainable model for at least another charter period. Once the charter review process starts, the Trust will want to make sure that it includes a full, open public debate about the right level of funding for the BBC. And that means discussing the sort of BBC we all want, its role in our culture and creative industries, its contribution to... Uh, the growth of an increasingly globalised digital society and economy. The structure and the cost base of the organisation obviously need to be examined, and that's why the Director-General and Anne Bulford are uh, pursuing benchmarking so thoroughly. The Trust will want to make an informed public contribution to the process of setting the BBC's funding, and so in advance of any government decision and in the course of the next Charter and Funding Review, we'll do some work of our own. We'll consult the public and will scrutinise the costs of any plans and proposals put forward by the BBC executive. Charter review will also be the time to review the role and remit of the Trust itself. Now, I'm confident that there's an enduring role for an independent body dedicated to upholding the public purposes of the BBC 
and holding its management to account. After all, it doesn't belong to its management any more than it belongs to the government or any agency of the government. It belongs to the public who pay for it and they need to know that someone's standing up for them and the public interest. My colleague David Liddermont has expressed this very well. He wrote recently, the idea that a public body spending £4 billion a year of other people's money can be run entirely by its board of management, on the ball non-execs and a hawkish NAO and PAC notwithstanding, with no separate body to protect the public interest and public value, is frankly insane. The BBC matters too much and public investment in it is too great. The changes we've made to the existing structures should help us to do an even better job of protecting public interest and public value. In the course of Charter Review, there will no doubt be plenty of suggestions for major structural changes at the top of the BBC, but I'm suspicious of oversimplistic prescriptions. A lot of nonsense is talked about the Trust not being able to be both cheerleader and regulator. In practice, a constructive tension of this sort exists for directors on any board or for that matter, for hundreds of thousands of school governors up and down the country. And, as the BBC executive would no doubt confirm, the Trust rarely does much that you could call cheerleading, except, of course, to recognise the BBC's role as a vital national, civic and cultural institution serving its public purposes. We won't ourselves be proposing major structural change, not least because the existing structures are only eight years old, Frequent governance change can itself be a route for exerting political pressure on the BBC. But that doesn't mean that we want to defend every detail of the current setup. We're already trying to build on the work we do with our four audience councils and the programme of public consultations and research. We'd also expect a debate about how to update our tools, such as service licences and public value tests. The regula regulatory system isn't as effective as it could be um, for scrutinising smaller and more evolutionary changes in the digital services or closures and reductions in services, yet those are the character of um, change to BBC services in the past few years. All that debate is for later. The main point is that the twin principles of independence and accountability need to underpin how the BBC is governed. Meanwhile, we need to show that the recent changes to how we work with the BBC executive are allowing us to be more focused, more rigorous and more transparent in the work that we do so that licence fee payers can get a better BBC. And with that in mind, we've set four immediate priorities for the management. These are the specific areas where we want to see progress within the two years before Charter Review. And the four priorities are to improve the quality, variety and originality of new drama on BBC One, particularly in peak time. Secondly, to ensure firm control of overall headcount, including continued reductions in the number of senior managers. Third, to make tangible progress in reflecting better the diversity of the UK's population in the BBC's workforce and in its output, in particular increasing, increasing the number of women on air and to pursue more partnerships with other cultural and creative organisations across the UK. These priorities are ultimately about keeping the BBC focused on creating the best possible programmes for the people who pay for it, through the way it organises itself, as well as through the creative decisions that it makes. I should stress the obvious point that we're starting from a very high level of performance in terms of quality and audience appreciation. So take BBC One Drama, for example. The past year has seen some superb new dramas shown at nine o'clock. 
They include some of the best programmes that any broadcaster could offer, including Sherlock and Happy Valley. And we know that these and others are standout programmes for audiences. Even so, there's a shared ambition between the Trust and the Executive for the BBC to get even better. £200 million or so of BBC One's budget each year goes on drama. BBC One scores strongly on audience measures of quality and distinctiveness, but not always quite as well as ITV or BBC Two. So we're challenging the management to stretch themselves and be as ambitious as possible, to see whether they can use that money even better in what is a very competitive market. And I'm delighted that Tony Hall has signalled that high-quality British drama is an editorial priority for him and one that he wants to invest in. The Trust has spent the best part of a year reviewing the BBC's four main television channels and will publish the results next month. The findings are overwhelmingly positive and they show that there's a lot for the BBC to be very proud of. However, there are also some big challenges, one of which is how to extend the range of new and innovative ideas at the heart of the peak schedule on BBC One. BBC One, which is three-quarters of the population each week, with high-quality programmes that audiences love. It's of central importance to the BBC's mission as a universal broadcaster. And that's why in the last financial year, over a billion pounds was spent on BBC One programmes. The channel has a particular responsibility to get the best possible programmes to the widest possible range of people. At present, though, and despite its achievements, our research shows an audience concern that BBC One plays it too safe in parts of its peak time schedule. And this covers factual and entertainment programmes as well as drama. The industry experts we've spoken to echo that view. BBC One is greatly appreciated, but it can sometimes feel too predictable. Its viewers expect still more from it. So we'll use our report on the TV services uh, published next month to set out in more detail what we expect the management to do. The BBC executive has already started to address the four overall priorities that I just listed. As the Director-General's recent announcement on diversity shows, and these areas, these four areas, will now be the focus of our discussions with the executive um, so that we can understand what they, their plan of action and uh, report back on them in 12 months. Some things, like the proportion of women we see and hear on the airwaves, can and should change quickly. So the challenge that I talked about at the beginning of this speech, responding to the greater diversity of our country in all its dimensions, is translated into some systematic action on the diversity of the people the BBC employs. There isn't a quick and easy fix on diversity, or on independence for that matter, but these challenges are fundamental to the long-term future of the BBC. It must remain independent, universal and accountable to the public so that the 21st century BBC is an integral part of 21st century Britain. And I want to end with an item from Radio Merseyside that I found as part of the amazingly rich uh, BBC online coverage of the World War I centenary. It's a great story. I love that line, that didn't suit the women of the North West. The BBC's coverage of the Great War and the recent D-Day anniversary reminds us of the role TV and radio and now online services too play as a vital part of our shared cultural heritage as well as our personal memories. And this fantastic story of working-class Merseyside women playing football in 1920 is also a reminder of the rich variety of our country in the past and how important it is for the BBC to continue to speak to all of us in all our present variety in the future as well. Thank you very much.
Thanks very much, Dan. Pause to catch your breath. Um, in a second, actually, just for those of you who care about the men's game, just got two things to say to you, which is Australia nil, Spain three, <laughs> Netherlands two, Chile nil. Um, but of course you knew that because you got it on your BBC News Alert, probably. Um, there's a fascinating speech, Diane, and you, you're very ambitious the way you managed to cover so many aspects, the, 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 the quality and the depth of what the BBC does, but also you know, its external role, and obviously the governance bit as well. Um, I'm sure people will have questions about that in particular. If I can keep on the very broad bit, what you... You're an economist, so obviously you know all about resources and how that determines in many ways what you can and can't do, um, regardless of where they come from in terms of funding types. What you didn't say in there directly, at least, was whether the BBC, um, put in very crude terms, is too big. When you ask most people in other newsrooms, say, or other media organisations, one of the things they say instinctively is, it's too big, that it's occupying too much public space or market share, that generally because in many areas other media organisations have been perhaps denuded, the BBC is relatively bigger and much bigger in real terms. And yet there has less money going forward. How do, you, how do you address that? Do you think it's got to stop, stop doing some things? Because whenever that happens, there's always a big outcry. Things have got to stop. And how strategic should that be? Well, there are several points to make about that. Um, one is that the BBC is obviously big compared to some media organisations and actually very small compared to other media organisations. And we're now in an environment where um, some largely... Uh, American, actually largely Californian media, media entities are quite by far the biggest players in our media markets. So the landscape has changed. To anybody who says the BBC is too big, I'd quite like to know what they think the right size ought to be and how they think about that. And I don't think... They um, take smaller. <laughs> that's not an answer. That's, yeah. not a, that's not an empirically founded answer. So I think the right starting point, and one that I hope we'll get to in the charter review process, is to think about actually what do we want the BBC to do, what role do we want it to play in what has been a very successful media ecology for the UK, but it's changing because of the globalisation of these markets, and then get to the funding question. So what is the money for, and not just uh, some... some, uh, quite abstract number plucked out of the air. I think it needs to be evidence-based, and that's the thing about being an economist, as you know. Right. So I will go back, actually, to the, the, the regulation bit. You, you, you dismiss um, the idea that the trust should, or that governance of the BBC should be somehow separated out into somebody who uh, sticks up for the BBC, if you like, and somebody else who sticks up for the BBC consumer. And you dismiss that but, but why is that such a, a silly idea? You're very dismissive about it. Why is that? Because to most people out there, they would see that as very logical, especially when you're thinking, and no one's suggesting that what has gone wrong, like the money wasted on digital or the other editorial problems, was somehow the fault of the BBC's governance as such. But a lot of things have gone wrong in the last eight years, and yet you're arguing for continuity. You're saying BBC Trust continues to ride these two horses, which to most people think... It is, in simple terms, is quite contradictory. You can't appoint a director general 
and then hold that threat to general to account, for example? Um, I know it's often portrayed as contradictory. I don't really see why that's very different from being a school governor appointing a head teacher and holding the head teacher to account. I think that's sort of... That might not be a good example after the recent... But that sort of tension is um, inherent in any kind of director's role. Now, of course, it's a fair question about things that have gone wrong, because there have been some, and we have um, tried to quickly um, make some changes to ensure that they don't recur. There are lots of things that have gone right, and it's really interesting to look at the differences between those areas. Things that have gone right would include all our work on editorial standards, the process of uh, hearing appeals on complaints against BBC, where my colleagues um, do uphold complaints and hold the BBC to account in that way. There's been the service reviews, which have brought about change in BBC services. Um, There's been the process of public value tests, which have created a much more... um, open, transparent discussion with the rest of the market. So all of that has gone right. People don't talk about those. And I think the difference... Understandably, I don't mind that. The difference between those two areas is that the Charter sets out quite clearly what the respective responsibilities of trust and executive are in those areas. It's much less clear about the kind of operational areas where things have gone wrong. So one of the changes that we've recently made is ourselves clarifying the responsibilities of the BBC executive and the responsibilities of the trust in those sorts of areas. And so you're, you're, you seem to be implicitly accepting that there's still some room for discussion about what exactly the trust does in its relation. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not at all defensive about um, having to do things better. Right. OK. I would like to throw it out. I think we've got some microphones for people um, if they want to ask questions. It would be good if you do the usual format of... Down the front here, please. Okay. Say who you are. That would be great. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Bob Ward from the Grantham Research Institute here at uh, LSE. Um, I was interested to hear about um, you defend the uh, importance of the independence of the BBC, but I was a bit disappointed that you weren't speaking more about the importance of journalism at the BBC because it seems to me that the main many of the attacks on the reputation of the BBC recently have been around its journalism. It's certainly one of the areas in which the Conservative Party is most hostile towards the BBC, and yet it seems to be that it's the underinvestment in BBC journalism that is one of the ways in which the BBC is given this impression of a, a managed decline. So I wondered how important you think uh, improving and investing in journalism at the BBC is to its future. Well... Obviously, I think the BBC's journalism is um, at the heart of its public service mission. It's uh, one of the public priorities that the uh, audiences rank at the top of the top of the list as far as they're concerned. And uh, particularly today, when we've heard the news about the trial in Egypt, I think defending the work that journalists do is, is profoundly important. Um, uh, in, uh, Impartiality and accuracy are core functions of of the BBC Trust and one of the um, ways in which we spend a lot of time actually holding BBC management to account. We take it very seriously. Um, I think we are in times when people have become quite polarised about certain issues and it's pretty obvious what they are. And, of course, that sort of discussion about impartiality is much harder in polarised times. And the way that we think about that is about the range of voices and perspectives being heard. As for investment, well, it's of course true that BBC News is having to make efficiency savings um, as as the rest of the organisation is. Um, 
and I, th- I think, though, that it, it gets a substantial share of B- overall BBC resource. And um, the, uh, James Harding is able to make the investments that he wants to make in um, you know, new digital platforms and, and new types of innovation for news. The news review that my colleague Rich Dare just uh, um, led and published recently put a particular emphasis on that kind of innovation. And at the moment, we think the BBC News can do that. Um, and we take the impartiality and the role of BBC journalism incredibly seriously. In terms of, um, this is not so much on the independence, but more, if at a time when the news is facing such budget constraints, is that a great time to go to ITN and hire a handful of their reporters at very high salaries? Well, thank goodness it's not my job to hire and fire people at the BBC. That's not the role at all. And those kinds of judgments have to be made by the people running it uh, day to day. Okay, so we seem to have lots down the front. So you can bring the microphones down the front first. Let's, let's mop up some down the front. You there first. Who, who was over here? Somebody had hands up. Down here as well. And then we'll move, we'll move our way back. Everyone will come in. Chap in the blue shirt in the middle there after. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Uh, hi, Sally Brat-Mitsova from LSE Media Policy Project. You mentioned um, the local TV project as one of the top-slicing burdens that was sort of forced on the BBC um, uh, in the last round. And I was wondering, is there any hope that that could contribute at all to the diversity of output and representation that you were talking about in terms of programming? Or is that just pouring money into a, little, into a government project that's doomed. <laughs> um, I'm all in favour of competition. I spent eight years on the, on the Competition Commission and I'm particularly in favour of competition for the BBC because that keeps it on its toes and that's better for licence fee payers. So I have no objection in principle and of course things produced by different people might or might not um, produce more diversity. But it is a government policy initiative. That's the only point I was trying to make about it. Okay, Hi, I'm John Mayer. I co-edited the book you quoted from on the BBC. Let me take you forward. You've got the job, January 2017. Licence fee is stuck at £145.50. Um, the decriminalisation has gone through. You've lost 10% of your revenue. So you're losing something between half a billion and a billion pounds worth of income. What would you say to the management? I would hope um, that if we get to that stage, if I get the job, Big if, being named front-runner by the Daily Telegraph is probably the kiss of death. Um, um, that that takes place after discussion about what kind of BBC we want and what kind of services it can provide. I'm very clear that what can't happen is um, for the income to go down in real terms by that much and we have the same BBC because that salami slicing that did occur in the past has reached its limit. We need a proper discussion in the chart review debate about what kind of BBC we want um, what it will need to fund that. The decriminalisation point, it hasn't actually gone through yet, has it? So um, where do you stand on, on that? I don't think anybody um, has any objections to the principle of decriminalisation, but it has to be discussed in the context of what it would imply for the BBC's income as well. And, you know, I think the debate's a very healthy one. Okay. Gentleman there. I'm Marcus Ryder. I'm chair of the World Television Society um, Diversity Committee. I was very interested in the announcements on Friday, and you alluded to them, and or didn't allude to them, you spoke directly to them um, with regards to what Tony Hall was saying about diversity and the different initiatives. 
One of the things which I'm interested in appealing to you as an economist, and I'd love for your, especially as the Competition Commission, is that in many ways broadcasting is an oligopsony in that you have a few terrestrial broadcasters or a few very large broadcasters buying the supplies of hundreds of thousands of freelancers and other members of staff. And so what I'm slightly curious about is whether you see diversity as a market failure. And if so, why we seem to be concentrating on the suppliers, i.e. creating initiatives to train them better, um, creating, giving 2.1 million to development projects to actually make their pitches better. Whereas normally when you're addressing, and I would have thought, well, you can advise me on this, when you're addressing a, either an oligopoly or an oligopsony, you would actually concentrate on, in an oligopsony, on the buyers, and in an oligopoly, the, the sellers. And it just seems slightly perverse that we seem to try to be addressing the actual majority and not what you normally do when there's a market failure. Well, that's a very interesting question. Actually, I think it's um, a more competitive market, less of a monopsony than it has been in the past. I mean, the media market has changed quite a lot. The BBC has obviously got a very important symbolic role in this, but it's a smaller purchaser of labour than it has been in the past. The initiatives that Tony Hall announced are very welcome. Um, I'm sure there will be other kinds of initiatives too. And I think because this is... Um, quite a stubborn and complex problem, there might need to be lots of other things that get tried, and some of them will work and some of them won't. But if they don't work, we'll be monitoring it, and, and something else will then get tried. But I think the, the message to take from it is the serious commitment by the BBC Trust and also by the BBC Executive to deliver measurable progress on this issue. Hi, I'm Juliana Lucas. Um, my question to you is about... Uh, uh, almost the same as uh, the, the fellow man that spoke there, uh, in terms of diversity. Um, Sir Trevor McDonald recently warned against the risk of apartheid in the media. Uh, Lenny Henry has constantly called for ring-fencing of money for uh, ethnic minorities, uh, journalists perhaps even, to be given a certain allocated to be, to, to money to be allocated for them to perhaps maybe like a, a, a media fund uh, to increase the number of senior black journalists in the BBC or even in other areas. Would you, how would you tackle that uh, risk from, to prevent that risk from happening, um, the, apartheid, uh, the risk of apartheid in the media, particularly in the BBC? Well, I think as I was just saying, it's going to take a range of initiatives because it depends whether you're looking at um, what's on BBC programmes, presenters on the news, um, the workforce uh, who are off air and not seen, not seen on air or, or heard on the radio. And um, so what we're talking about is a, is a series of different measures that will increase the diversity of the BBC's workforce and, and what's seen in its programmes. But as I was saying in the speech, this does include the issue of ethnic minorities, but it also includes other questions. The question about what social class people see on their screens. Are there people in programmes who speak to their own life experiences? And there is some of that, but maybe there should be more of that. Or the question of whereabouts in the country people are, as well as what um, ethnic or cultural community they come from. So this is a, this is a complicated question. How, how to reflect a very kaleidoscopic society is a tough question, but it's a challenge that I'm absolutely confident Tony Hall and his colleagues are up for. 
Okay, I think we can sort of venture backwards now, uh, well, up the hill, as it were. Can we take a lady in black first? Were there any up on this side? Yeah, the chap in brown jacket next to the DG. Okay, uh, I'm Liz Hull from City University London. Hello. I've got two points, if that's okay. Uh, the first is, when people can access BBC programmes through the iPlayer for free, how can you justify the rest of us paying the licence fee? And the second question is related to the St. Helens women's football team, which was absolutely lovely. But it all went horribly wrong when the men came home. And uh, my research into expert women on TV and radio shows that exactly the same thing happens today. In the evening, flagship news programmes, the women, the, the women representation, the representation of women declines. In fact, in two years, despite a fairly vigorous campaign, you've still got four males to every female expert, and perhaps even more deplorable, three males to every female reporter. And that's after two years and lots of awareness raising. Are there any plans to actually tangibly do something about that? Yeah, uh, thank you for those. I did um, mention one line in the speech saying that we'd like to propose um, a, a small change to the licence fee regulation so that it does cover viewing uh, to the iPlayer only. Um, uh, actually, very, the proportion of people only watching the iPlayer is relatively small, so it's a small issue at the moment, but we recognise that it will grow and we'd want to propose a change there. Um, does it all go horribly wrong when the men come in? Well... I'm an economist and I spend a lot of time in environments where there are even fewer women, far fewer women, than there are in broadcasting in general and in the BBC in, in particular. And as I said, one of the specific priorities for the next 12 months is to increase the proportion of women on air and that's something that we'll be measuring and reporting on in the annual report next year. So I think that's a pretty strong incentive and we, we will see more change. Uh, Ian Hargreaves from Cardiff University. Um, I think I correctly summarised Lord Patton's position on uh, the future of the Trust as it's not broken and uh, the Trust um, had uh, some time between now and Charter Review to demonstrate to everybody that it therefore doesn't, uh, the, the structure, the setup doesn't need to be radically changed. I found myself asking the question, listening to your very interesting lecture, whether you agree with him or not. Um, I think broadly, I mean, as I said, I think there are some, change, some things that could be changed. I'm absolutely open to improvement. I haven't heard of any alternative that um, guarantees those twin principles of independence from political interference and accountability of BBC management to licence fee payers. But if I do hear that kind of proposal, I'm absolutely open to them. I'm not trying to be defensive about, about the particular model that I've been involved in myself. On that last point about um, the political interference, a very interesting section in your speech where you're um, suggesting that some of the mechanisms by design or just by evolution are potentially compromising the BBCs. Do you think that there is a, um, something more to it? Do you think there is a, a political desire to hedge the BBC in more? I don't mean necessarily to interview or intervene on news decisions, but to see the BBC uh, as something that's more um, controlled, restricted, because so much money is involved. I think it has come about by increments rather than by any grand design, if that's your question. I, I haven't sensed um, any deliberate effort to constrain the independence of the BBC, and that's why I think it's important to get this issue out into the open and have a debate so that we can clarify what the rules of engagement are, and, and just put a halt to that incrementalism. Yeah. Okay. 
Right, let's say a couple more. One on the left there. Anybody else at the back that I've missed? Put your hands up. Thank you. Uh, my name is um, Sylvia Harvey, University of Leeds. Thank you for a subtle and uh, careful talk in this difficult period before charter renewal. I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit more about the process whereby the license fee was reclassified as a tax by whom and why. And I ask this question in the context of having been perhaps one of the few people who read the DCMS, Department of Culture, Media and Sport, list of organizations which were to be classified as supernumerary, surplus to requirements or not. Um, it was a, an amazing list. It was issued, I think, just before the um, Comprehensive Spending Review. Uh, and uh, it was a list, as you've said, of all the so-called granted aid uh, organizations. And the tick was either needed or not needed, uh, surplus requirements or not surplus requirements. And there, alphabetically under the Bs, if you looked, you found the British Broadcasting Corporation. And actually, it had a tick which said it was not surplus requirements, but it could apparently have been quite easily ticked the other way. So for people who are not aware of that, I'm very glad you drew attention to it. And if, you, if you'd mind, I, I think it was done under the Gordon Brown government. I don't know whether it had something to do with the protocol to the Amsterdam Agreement, uh, the redefinition, the classification of tax. It, it's so important. I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about that. Well, I don't, um, I don't know the detail about it, I'm afraid. And um, uh, it was seen as a, as a technical kind of decision. But as to the detail about how that came about, I don't know. And we'll have to um, get the answer to you later. But is it a tax? I mean, what's the dis distinction? Because obviously to most people it is, it is a tax. Do you know, I don't think that's how people think about it. Right. Um, the difference between um, how people... Uh, say they feel about the licence fee compared to tax, the difference in evasion rates and the lengths to which people go not to pay. Um, you can technically, obviously, define it as a tax, but it's a very unusual tax that people, on the whole, really don't mind paying. Very unusual, yeah. Uh, side here, just here, please. Simon Albright. I thought Tony Hall's announcements on Friday represented a huge advance on the position that he uh, expressed last November, and so they're greatly to be welcomed. Uh, but if you look at the demand side, he's set targets which are out there in the long grass beyond license renewal, and a fund for what might be called race programs, uh, which is apparently the same sum that Trevor MacDonald is due under his ITV contract. The campaign on diversity has been about BAME people working on mainstream shows as well. Now, there's nothing in the proposals that would drive mainstream shows. And today we read uh, that uh, the Director General has said uh, the Lenny Henry plan in any form is not an option. Has the Trust formed a view on the Lenny Henry plan? Um, the, the short answer is, is no. It's not a plan that we um, would insist on the BBC adopting. What we do is um, we'll set a baseline of figures next month for the proportion of people um, from uh, black, Asian and minority ethnic groups employed in the BBC in uh, different categories and monitor how that changes over the year. I, mean, I completely recognise the frustration that people feel about this issue. Um, but the truth is that 
some of these pipelines actually take a long time. And even if you're just talking about commissioning new television shows, that's an 18-month or two-year turnaround. So um, difficult as it is, people have to be patient about seeing that, seeing that kind of result. Um, but we're going to have figures and we're going to be tracking it. And um, if the figures don't deliver, then we'll think about different kinds of plans. Up on the left there, Uh, Nick McDonald from Media Futures. Um, I attended a talk by John Riley, head of Sky News, recently at the RSA, who, uh, I have to say, gave rather a happy-clappy view of the future of news, which is one thing you've addressed. And you rightly noted people feel more distant from news, um, but that it needs to be made more relevant to them and more local and so on. But you also talk about the importance of the BBC as being universal in the way it uh, talks to people. And my sense is that we are more distant from news because we used to either make the news or think we could make the news, not as in the producers, but as in being citizens. And now we're kind of spectators. And I think that's a real challenge for an organisation, partly about informing people to address. And I wonder if your strategy of trying to make things more relevant to people will end up feeling more patronising, actually, and drive people away further, particularly young people. And I think about that 60-minute slot on BBC Three, and I know we're not here to criticise content, but it is pretty... My kids get pretty patronised by it, and they're only 12. Um, so I wonder if the BBC needs to actually emphasise universality rather than diversity and locality and relevance, uh, if it's really going to play any role in, in the future of news rather than undermine it. But don't you think the way not, not to appear patronising is actually to be employing the kind of people to whom you hope the news will be speaking? And so the two are linked in my mind that you can't have um, that, that true universality not, not in a patronising way without actually having the diversity as well. Can I respond to that, John? Uh, well, as a middle-aged white man, I'm barely equipped to speak about this, but in my experience, uh, in the past, people from diverse backgrounds have been able to see the universality in other people's struggles and other people's experiences because we've talked about it in that kind of way and a kind of particularism and where does it stop really you know if you're an Indian well if you're a Tamil if you're a Hindu I, I just it just seems to me that's the path which has no clear end and I think I mean it's very difficult to be enlightenment in this age but I'm not sure there's a real alternative to it well I don't um, run BBC News. I'm not a journalist anymore, so I don't know that I can answer your question. But I would point to the experience of seeing BBC World Service reporters on the network news in the UK and the richness and kind of authenticity that has added to the reporting. And I think that actually lends some weight to what I was just saying. Okay. We've got time for just one more question, really, I think. Uh, here, right down the two microphones rushing at you now. Gentleman in the middle there in the white shirt. Thank you. Deep Sagar. To my mind, in the last couple of years, the trust seems to have uh, given the impression that it's reacting, perhaps fairly slowly, to pressures from outside, whether it's from politicians or the rest of the media or the community. And I'm sure you'll say this is an unfair perception. If it is, would you mind just say, giving a couple of examples where you think the trust has actually led the way in getting change to happen? Thank you. 
I'd give the examples of um, our service reviews and, for example, on Radio 1 and pointing out the importance of meeting its remit of appealing to younger audiences. I think the service reviews have been rather successful. As I was saying earlier, I think the um, public value tests and the market impact work have been quite successful. The iPlayer was a, a trust public value test. BBC Alba is one that's been um, a, a success that people did not expect. So, you know, you're absolutely right about the perception on some of these very high-profile issues. When events like that happened, what can you do? You've got to respond to them in what looks like quite a, a reactive way. Um, so I think in our day-to-day work, there are lots of examples of being on the front foot and doing things quite successfully. And do you see it as a BBC Trust, this goes back to the sort of dual role, how much is it part of the Trust to actually lead, you know, to say, yeah, it, to programme makers, channel controls, etc., that actually we think you should be headed in this direction or not? Or shouldn't you just simply have faith in what they come up with as a strategy? That depends how much um, what the BBC is doing diverges from what audiences tell us, and we do an awful lot of work through audience councils, consultations, research, um, an annual survey about how well the BBC meets people's expectations of what it should be doing on each of its public purposes. And so where we push and try to get ahead are where audiences tell us there's a gap between what the BBC gives them, no matter how good it is, and what they expect the BBC. And one of those has been on um, creative ambition, hence the priority set on, on, um, on that area this year. Final question. Um, who do they have to kill off in EastEnders to make room for more diverse actors? <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry. Pass on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Diane Carr, thank you very, very much for an extraordinary thorough and uh, wide-ranging evening. Uh, huge more to discuss. Um, best of luck, and thanks very much for being with thank us tonight. You. That's great. Thank you.